Lord, just after your son was resurrected, what was on his heart was that his sheep be fed. And we have gathered here this morning, Lord, to partake in this meal by your word as we open it together as a church family. We pray your spirit's attendance. We pray your blessing uh, upon the preaching of your word. And Father, give us ears to hear and an alertness if we have come in perhaps discombobulated or rattled or uh, confused by something, Lord, I pray uh, that this time in your word would center us once again in you and your purposes and your glory and your goodness and your faithfulness and your mission. Uh, Lord God, thank you for this church family. Thank you for all of the warmth and the love that our family has experienced through this church family Uh, Over the past couple of weeks, we know that it is your work and your um, gentleness and goodness uh, shining through the people here. So I give you thanks. Uh, Father, be with us now. Uh, My simple prayer is that the word would deepen into the people and that the people would deepen into your word. uh, And that this time that we have over the next half hour or so would be a peg in that process. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Several of you have already asked how the Dunbar family is doing and how the funeral for April's mom uh, went. I can tell you that the funeral service actually took on the flavor of a worship service. Uh, Amidst the tears, and we did shed tears, there was praise to God for mom's life. Uh, There was thankfulness expressed for the memories of her that we will always cherish Uh, But most of all, we praised God for the fact that mom died knowing Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior. And thus, we are certain that we will see her again uh, one sweet day that is coming, I pray, soon. But we're thankful to be back in Montreal after a flight delay due to the weather. And I just wanted to just take a moment to express my thanks to you as our church family Uh, for all of the ways that you have uh, blessed us and cared for us over the past couple of weeks, Christmas, and then through into New Year. We are very thankful for each and every one of you. I also want to express my sincere thanks to Charles. Is Charles here today? I haven't seen him yet, if he is. But Charles stood in the gap while I was away for a couple of Sundays and a baptism service, and uh, from all accounts did a very fine job. So I'm very thankful to Charles. I listened to his first sermon online, and then he sent me the manuscript of the second service uh, that I went through, and I thought he did just a great job. So thank you, Charles, and even if you're absent, I'm giving you thanks here. Well, just before we approach our next text in our journey through 1 Peter, um, just as something of a lead-in, I wanted to draw our attention just for a moment to one of the most important literary works in the history of Western culture. Namely, The City of God, written by St. Augustine in the 5th century. The City of God is a massive literary work, and there are many, several different topics and avenues that Augustine explores there. But one of the major things that Augustine does in The City of God is he gives us his theory of history. The basic argument that Augustine presents in the city of God is that, in essence, 
At any time, any given time during history, the world has consisted of two basic cities, two basic societies, if we want to put it that way, and that these two basic cities or societies have lived at odds with one another for all of recorded history. So on one hand, said Augustine, in this world we have the city of God. That city or that society that is made up of kingdom people, of believers. The city of God consists of those who love God and who obey God. While on the other hand, in this world at any given time, there is the city of man. The city of man is that society that is made up of unbelievers. The city of man consists of those who are self-focused, who are earthly-minded, who only live for earthly interests, who have a general contempt for the living God. The city of man and the city of God. These two cities, argued Augustine, have always been mingled together. The wheat of the city of God has always grown up alongside the tares of the city of man. These two cities have lived contemporaneously with one another, mixed together at any given point in time, and this will be the case until God wraps up history and does his final remodel of the cosmos. The city of God and the city of man. We have both living together right now, right here in Montreal. Two basic cities living for different goals and by different values. Well, in the next passage of 1 Peter that we have under consideration, Peter is going to compare and contrast Two qualities of life, two basic ways of living. Once again, by way of reminder, Peter is addressing Christians in this letter. He's writing to the church. And he wants us to see that there must be, listen, there must be a real difference, a real contrast between life in the Spirit Life in the city of God versus life in the flesh, life in the city of man. As a community of aliens and exiles in this world, we, the church, must actually tangibly look different and act different and respond different than unbelievers in the world around us. And all of it, of course for the purposes of God's mission in God's world. We pick it up at 1 Peter 4.1 today. And I invite you to do some work with me here. This is a, not, a, not a necessarily easy passage. So hang in there with me. The passage begins with Peter making a reference to the cross of Jesus Christ. He says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body. Now, the suffering of Christ in the body was most intense, of course, at the cross of Calvary. 
In all likelihood, Peter is making a reference to the cross, as verse 1 opens. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, there's the cross, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Now, notice first here that Peter connects, doesn't he? He connects Christ on the cross with us and our disposition. Watch this. You and I are to arm ourselves with something, he says here. This is military language. Soldiers who are getting ready to take a strategic hill somewhere in battle prepare themselves for the fight, don't they? They clean their weapons, they load their weapons, they polish their boots, etc. You and I, as aliens and strangers in the world, are in, as we've said in previous weeks, we are in a mop-up operation. We are in the last phase of the battle that is happening between D-Day and V-Day, between the cross and resurrection, D-Day, and between the second coming of Jesus Christ, V-Day, Victory Day. Peter says here, Arm yourselves, soldiers. With what? We are to arm ourselves in the battle with the same attitude, or in some versions it says, the same intention that Peter has just finished talking about, namely the attitude or the mindset that characterized Jesus Christ on the cross. And so we ask the question, What was the attitude or the mindset or the disposition of Jesus in his Passion Week? What was the disposition of Jesus as he hung there bleeding to death on the cross? And to answer, we might put it something like this. That the attitude of Jesus Christ as he hung dying on the cross was total submission Total surrender to the Father. Yes? Have that same attitude, believer, as you go about your days on earth. Total submission to the Father God. Total surrender to Him. Total surrender to Him. I Surrender All is one of the most dangerous hymns that we could sing. Total surrender. To the Father. Or we might say that the attitude of Jesus on the cross was a complete willingness to be self sacrificial. A complete willingness to be self sacrificial. Have that same attitude, believer. Pray in earnest in your prayer closet that the Lord will do a work in you whereby you become a person who shows a complete Christ-like willingness to be self-sacrificial in all things. What was the attitude or the disposition of Jesus Christ on the cross? We might also put it like this, that the attitude of Jesus on the cross was a vibrant fear of God, A total trust in God. That even though the spikes had been driven through bone and flesh and the blood was flowing down, yet Jesus trusted that God would yet vindicate him. Have that same attitude. 
my believing brother, my believing sister. Trust him no matter what your situation might be. Fear him. Live dependent on him. Trust him for vindication one day, if not in this life, then in the next. In our text, Peter says that you and I, as aliens and strangers in the world, you and I, as citizens of the city of God, we are to arm ourselves with the same attitude as Christ. We are to have Christ's insight, Christ's perception, his mindset as he hung there on the cross. Again, what is it? Just to sum up, the fear of God, the trust in God that Christ had, willingness to suffer for what is God-honoring and for what is right, that must be our basic attitude. Because, says Peter at the end of verse 1, Now watch this. He says, whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Now there are a couple of different ways to read this last phrase of verse 1, this last clause here of verse 1. The first way to read the clause is in terms of Jesus Christ. Christ suffered in the body, and it was his suffering in the body on the cross that took care of the sin, not of himself, but the sin of others for whom his death atoned. So in that sense, Christ finished with sin by his suffering on the cross. He was done with sin. He did away with sin. On that reading... Our phrase, whoever suffers in the body is done with sin, refers to Jesus Christ. But then the second way to read the phrase, which I think is preferable to the first, is to read it as referring to you and I, to believers in Jesus. I would argue that this phrase here at the end of verse 1 is less about Jesus and more about believers. And I say that for the following reason, that because... In the verse itself, we notice that Peter has moved the flow of thought, hasn't he, to believers. Watch this. Let's track with it again. Peter started, verse 1, talking about Jesus, we said, who suffered in his body. But then Peter shifted, didn't he, so that he was talking about believers. Believers are the ones who are to arm themselves with the mindset of Jesus Christ. And then it's right after that that we have the clause in question. It would make the most sense, I think, if Peter was still talking about believers in the last clause, which I think he is. And so the thought goes like this. If you and I, and I've invited you to do some work with me here, if you and I obey the middle clause of the verse, that is, if we arm ourselves with the attitude of Jesus on the cross, if we become willing, if necessary, to suffer because of our commitment to Jesus Christ, and then we do end up suffering in the body, that is, we do end up enduring mockery, persevering through the scorn of unbelievers, It shows, does it not, that we are people who are done with sin. 
Our willingness to endure suffering for the sake of Jesus and our actual suffering for Jesus acts like a showcase. It acts like a showcase that reveals that we have triumphed over sinful ways and over sinful patterns and sinful attitudes. Now the thought is, again, a little compacted here, sort of difficult, but I think that's what Peter is saying to us here in this verse. Listen to how Tom Schreiner puts it in his commentary on 1 Peter, and I'm going to paraphrase Schreiner here. He says that your commitment, believer, your commitment to suffer for the sake of Jesus... Are you willing to suffer for the sake of Jesus? Your commitment to say no, if necessary, to participating in worldly lawlessness and debauchery. Your commitment to say no to that, even while you are on the receiving end of mockery and scorn for your decision to say no. That is evidence that you have broken with sin. You're done with sin. Listen to how Karen Jobes puts it in her excellent commentary on 1 Peter. Jobes says this, and I'm quoting her here. Peter's readers face the choice of either taking the path of least resistance, going along with the values, norms, and practices acceptable and expected by their society, or being obedient to God, And suffering the consequences of criticism and condemnation by unbelieving family and friends. Their willingness to suffer this way therefore demonstrates, it demonstrates that they have resolved to be through with sin. So then the application of verse 1 for you and me is this. We keep Listening close to God in every single situation in life that we face. We keep letting and allowing God to dictate to our conscience whether or not we should participate in certain activities with friends and family, whether or not we should go certain places and be with certain people and engage in certain conversations. And remember, believer, I want you to remember this, to always remember this, that the answer no is just as holy as the answer yes. Right? God honors a Holy Spirit-directed no, if you have to utter that. Even when that no will bring persecution from people on your head. Your no may be a good indication that you are done with sin, which is a highly honored position to be in, in the sight of God. Well, that's verse 1. Let's go at last to verse 2. So Peter has just talked about believers being done with sin as they suffer for their faith. Now he says... As a result of being done with sin, believers do not live the rest of their earthly lives for, earth, uh, for evil human desires. But rather, they live out their days for the will of God. Notice the dividing line there. When Leah and Jeremiah were baptized a couple of weeks ago, 
they were immersed in death waters. Going under baptismal waters is symbolic of death, of going into a grave. It signifies a death. Death to what? Death to the old patterns of life. Death to sin. Why? Because of Jesus. And then Leah and Jeremiah rose upward out of the grave, out of the death waters, and the rising is symbolic of new life, of resurrection life because of Jesus Christ. Your baptism marks a turning point. Your life B.C., before Christ, was a life of self and a life of sin, which is buried behind you. Your life A.C., after Christ, is a new life. As a person in Christ who rises out of the water, you are animated by the Spirit of God and alive to God. Baptism says, I've come from death to life. I've come through the Red Sea. As Peter says here in verse 2, as a person who left behind the old, well, of course, you don't live the rest of your earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. You've been translated, haven't you, from the city of man to the city of God. You have new citizenship. Therefore, you live accordingly. You live out. I want to challenge each of us to live out your baptismal vows, even this week. Verse 3, verse 3, Peter says, because you know, he says, enough is enough. Notice this, verse 3. He says, for you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, what unbelievers choose to do. Enough is enough. A cutoff point has come for you. An end has come for you. An end to the reckless, godless, numbed out, dead, sinful, wasteful, debauched lifestyle in the city of man that you lived. Notice this. He says, you have spent enough time in the past. This is God speaking. Enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, wasting, wasting their God-given days on earth. Living, says Peter, in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, you uncomfortable yet, carousing, And detestable idolatry. These terms that Peter uses here are interesting. Debauchery describes the person who is unrestrained in terms of immorality. Whether sexual immorality or otherwise. The debauched person is one who pushes the envelope, who likes to push the envelope where decency is concerned. And then lust is a term that describes illicit sexual desire that leads to illicit sexual acts. 
And then the next three terms there, drunkenness, orgies, and carousing, all of these describe sort of a noisome, excessive, unhealthy, tawdry, inappropriate kind of behavior. The last term, detestable idolatry, probably Peter puts this in as a reference to some of the things that were going on in the pagan religious cults of his day. Things like temple prostitution, things like the offering of food sacrificed to idols, and excessive drinking. It was actually part of some of these quote-unquote religious rites. So what's the point? The point is, believer in Jesus Christ, are you a believer this morning? There came a point for you where enough was enough. I appreciate God's down-to-earth, tell-it-to-me-straight, salty talk in this part of the Bible. You spend enough time letting greed or letting sexual lust control you. You spent sufficient time Dabbling in weed. Going to parties where you had to call a cab afterward because you were so looped. The wasting of your life ended when Christ invaded and commandeered you for his glory. And that's what he does. Has he done that in your life? Has he found you and has he taken over and commandeered you for his purposes? Do you resonate with God's talk of enough here? Do you resonate with it? Verse 4. As for those folks who you used to run with, they are surprised that you don't join them anymore in their reckless, wild living. They are surprised at you. What has happened to her? I mean, we used to be able to smoke up and drink and do lines together and gather and make fun of people and laugh. She just, something's happened to her. She doesn't want to be with us anymore. They are surprised, startled that you don't join them in their reckless, wild living. And, says Peter, they go from being surprised to being downright angry and accusatory. They heap abuse on you. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. I think in this verse we have a great picture of what it can feel like sometimes, to live into our new identity as God's exiles and strangers in the world. Noah, in his day, went about acting in the righteousness of God. He built an ark, as he was commanded to do, and in doing that, in living in simple obedience to God and fidelity to God, Hebrews 11.7 says that Noah condemned the world. By living faithfully toward God. He condemned the world. By building the ark. Getting his family into it. He condemned the world. Noah's faithful obedience condemned the world. Think about that for a moment. When you and I stop joining the former crowd because of our commitment to follow Jesus Christ. 
when we refrain from joining them in their reckless, wild living, it can be perceived by that crowd as condemnation. And they don't like it. And so they might end up heaping abuse on you. Now, speaking personally, verse 4 is real to me in many ways because when God extracted me out of the music scene and plunked me eventually into full-time ministry, there was some flack. There was some static from the folk that I used to run with in the music scene. <laughs> some people just couldn't understand why I, why I wasn't hanging around anymore. And a few of them said some rather cruel things. But you know what? That's okay. Living in the fear of God and living in obedience to Jesus Christ is more important and infinitely more satisfying than anything that I had encountered in the music scene. You know, I resonate with a little section of a book called The Wisdom of Solomon that was written all the way back in the first century B.C. Now, it's not in your Bible, so don't look for it there. But The Wisdom of Solomon is an important early Jewish writing, even though it's not canonical, it doesn't appear in our scriptures. But just listen to these six lines. I'm going to read six lines from the Wisdom of Solomon. Essentially, they describe exactly what 1 Peter 4.4 describes. Now, this is written from the perspective of someone who's observing a believer and doesn't like what he sees. It says, he professes to have knowledge of God and calls himself a child of the Lord. He became to us a reproof of our thoughts. The very sight of him is a burden to us. (laughs) Because his manner of life is unlike that of others, and his ways are strange. I don't know about you, but I feel that sometimes. Do you? (laughs) People not quite sure what to do with you because now you're a believer. God is so good in the fact that he describes this reality to us right in 1 Peter 4.4 in his word. He knows what we're going through. Amen? Well, in verse 5, Peter says, listen to what he says. He says, people who heap abuse on believers, on the believers who used to hang with them but no longer do, these abusers will have to, what? Give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Yeah? As unpopular a thought as it may be in our contemporary world, there is a judgment coming for every single human being. Those who heap abuse on Christian believers now will have to give an account of that to God later. And then finally we have verse 6 which is another one of the more difficult verses in 1 Peter. So let's just take our final moments to walk through the corridors of this verse slowly and kind of reflectively. So notice verse 6 with me. Peter says, For this is the reason, this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. What's the reason the gospel was preached to those who are now dead, Peter? 
The reason comes in the very next part of the verse. The reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead was so that, notice the purpose clause, so that, here's our reason, they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Now, what in the world is Peter talking about in this verse? First of all, let's deal with that phrase, even to those who are now dead, that appears near the start of the verse. Even to those who are now dead. There there was a reason Christ was preached, a reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead. In other words, the gospel was preached to people while they were still alive, These people heard the proclamation of Jesus Christ while they were alive, and they believed, but then they died. These believers who responded to the gospel when they were alive are now dead. I think of my mother-in-law, who we buried in the cemetery out in B.C. last Saturday. While she yet lived, she heard the gospel And believed. And now she is dead. So the pattern was listen carefully the pattern was proclamation, hearing, believing, dying. One more time proclamation, hearing, believing, dying. And Peter says there's a reason for this pattern of proclamation, hearing, believing, and then dying. A reason. What's the background here? The background is this, that some in Peter's day had been saying this. They'd been saying, look at that believer lying dead over there in his casket. He died just like the unbeliever dies. Therefore, what advantage is there to becoming a believer? All people die, regardless of belief or unbelief, so what's the point of believing? That sort of attitude is precisely what Peter is referring to when he says in our verse, in verse 6, you, unbeliever, are looking at the dead believer, and you're judging by human standards in regard to the body. Judging by human standards... In regard to the body. But there's a reason, a glorious great reason that you aren't seeing, unbeliever. There's a reason for the pattern of proclamation, hearing, believing, and then dying. There's a reason. It's not futile. The point is, it's not futile to believe in this life simply to die like everyone else dies. The reason it's so important and so great and vital and blessed to hear and believe the gospel before you die is that after you die, Peter says, you will live. You will live according to God in regard to the Spirit. Even though you physically die, and it's coming for each and every one of us unless Jesus returns, Even though you physically die and you are buried, you will live according to God in regard to the Spirit. Now, my mother-in-law, Olga Burma's 82 years on this earth were but a prelude 
to the life she now enjoys in the literal presence of the risen Jesus. We said at the funeral, she has not died. She's just changed her life. She lives in the literal presence of the risen Jesus Christ. Her dying and being buried in the cemetery in Vernon, B.C. did not invalidate the promises of the gospel. She lives even though she died, and I am excited to see her again when I die. Now, folks, we just need to stand back for a moment, and we ought to be shouting hallelujah right now. Isn't the gospel glorious? Isn't it magnificent and great and awesome and delicious and exciting? I hope you're with me this morning. Isn't it good to be a believer? Aren't you glad that you're part of the eternal city of God, having been liberated by Jesus Christ from the city of man? In today's passage, Peter has given a pretty vivid contrast, has he not, between life in the old city versus new life in Jesus Christ. He's talked to us, hasn't he, about the shape of our attitude, the shape of our mindset in the city of God. As we travel through this earthly journey from day to day, we are to have the same insight, the same outlook, the same attitude that the suffering Jesus Christ had. Ready and willing to suffer for the sake of righteousness. To suffer, if necessary, for the sake of righteousness. Ready to suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ. Ready to give a holy no where necessary, even if that might mean persecution. A holy no to those around us, even when it, be, when it means being mocked, when it means being disparaged, when it means being abused, it's evidence that we are done with sin, to use Peter's language, and that is a great place to be. And Peter said, we know that one day those who choose to persecute us and mock us for our faith will surely have to give an account to God, even if we are reviled in this life for our faith, the promise of our eternal reward and eternal life with Jesus is not invalidated ever by any man or woman, even death 